just for for the purpose of any new listeners, the 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 AMA session is is is, is stands for Ask Me Anything, and it's just a chance for people to ask Phil uh, a question about the sales industry, sales profession, or indeed anything they'd like to ask. And um, Phil, perhaps you could briefly introduce yourself um, before we start. Sure. Um, yes, well, I'm Phil Squire. I'm the CEO of Consalia, uh, where London and Singapore located um, organization. Um, and we've been working in the area of sales and sales education now since 2006. Um, and uh, very excited to be here on these um, webinars. Indeed. I'm glad you're excited to be here. And um, <clears throat> we'll get going with one of our pre-submitted questions, uh, which comes sure. from Ian, Ian Jones. And, and Ian's, Ian's actually dialed in. So thank okay. you for coming on, Ian. Um, Ian's question is, how can salespeople get accurate information about what their customers want from them and are not getting? Um, yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. And um, it's a question that's not often asked in my experience by um, selling organizations. Um, you know, the questions of how do you get you know, perceptions of, of the sales force in particular. I think what organizations tend to do is they, they tend to be pretty good at things like net promoter score um, assessments, which tends to be um, a post-sales kind of survey um, and where you're looking at kind of service delivery. And perhaps within that, you might get some questions about the role of the salesperson in delivering the kind of service um, so it's actually quite, it, it, in my experience, quite unusual to, to actually ask customers the question about, you know, how do you want to be sold to and to what extent um, are salespeople selling to you in the way that you actually want? I mean, the obvious answer to this, this question is to, you know, pick up the phone and ask customers. Um, but I guess... The question is who should ask those questions? <laughs> in a sense, if a customer phones up, sorry, if a salesperson phones up a customer and asks the question, you know, what do you want from us? What aren't you getting? You, you may get the full picture, but what quite a number of our clients have found is that when they use an external organization to actually do a survey, it sort of elevates the importance of the exercise and you, you, you can get a lot of information that perhaps would otherwise be, be hidden uh, from the salesperson. Customers, it's not, not in every case, um, but, but customers tend not to want to um, sort of give the warts and all kind of picture perhaps on salesmanship in general. So I think there's a couple of ways you can go about it. There, there, there's, um, you know, one could do a certain amount of quantitative analysis of how customers perceive salespeople, which you could get from the kind of uh, mindset surveys that Consalia has, uh, which is on the Consalia website. Um, but you can also have a qualitative, uh, a qualitative analysis, which is where you'd have a more in-depth one-on-one discussion 
uh, with customers about what customers want from them. Um, I've seen some quite interesting kind of frameworks for, for getting feedback um, from salespeople in terms of looking at value and values. Um, you know, what, what, what value do you want from the sales per, uh, person now uh, that, uh, th that you're not getting? What value are you getting from a salesperson that you want to keep? And what value is the salesperson trying to sell to you that you're, that you're simply not interested in? And it's quite interesting to actually map um, that kind of input against what the salesperson thinks the customer would respond to that kind of question. And then you can, you can, um, you can also look at the concept of values, which is a subject very close to our heart here at Consalia. And you could ask uh, customers a similar question. What values do you see from the salespeople that you, you like and want to keep? What values would you like to get from salespeople but, but don't have and so on? Um, so having that kind of structured input about salesmanship, I think, can be very insightful and can inform an organization's sort of account uh, management uh, planning approach. And, and it can also provide some useful input to the salespeople um, about, uh, about ways in which they, uh, they can perform. Um, but but uh, actually, there's there's one quite interesting story that uh, perhaps I could share, which is when I was doing my my doctorate um, in in the very early days. I remember interviewing um, the chief technology officer of an organisation called Vodafone about this very question on behalf of um, Hewlett Packard, you know, one of our technology clients, and. Um, the uh, CTO was was really quite forthright about what he expected from salespeople, and he was quite provocative in some of his challenges. You know, you know he came up with phrases like, um, you know, salespeople spend too little time focused on the customer. Uh, no salesperson has asked if they could have a desk desk in my office. No salespeople have actually asked if they can join us for briefing sessions with analysts. You know, these are the kind of things that you would expect to get from the best salespeople. And of course, once that interview had happened, the account manager uh, then picked up the phone and said, can I have a desk in your office, please? <laughs> and yeah. and uh, it kind of led, led, led to completely transform the relationship with this account manager from being sort of quite negative to quite positive. And uh, what was then interesting was that there was... Um, a, a suggested change of account manager for that particular account uh, at the time. And um, uh, the uh, CTO of Vodafone said, if you change the account manager, I'm going to change the supplier. So it just shows how important it is to have, you know, that chemistry. And it also shows the value of engaging with customers with this kind of information. So, um, Ian, that's a, that's a great question you've posed. I don't know if you've got any further thoughts to add to that, but I'm very happy if you want to I'm kind just, of chip in. And I've just clicked. I've just clicked the allow to talk button. Oh, okay. <laughs> if Ian wants to come off mute and talk, he is more than welcome to. Um, okay. Thank you, Luke. That 
thank you, Phil. That was a, a very helpful response, and I greatly appreciated it. The, the, the only other thing that I would want to say would yeah. be to underline the importance of the third-party involvement. Uh, yeah. Like you, during the course of my career, I've done a fair number of loss reviews on behalf of clients. Yeah. And, and one of the questions I ask a client, obviously, before I go out to do the loss review is, what are your salesmen telling you was the reason that they lost that particular piece of business? And the answer is, you can appreciate uh, very frequently, was we lost it on price. Price. Oh, yeah. So, so I, I would go out and have a very long conversation with this client of my client and get a very involved, detailed reason for why my client was not selected. And, and, and when I take that, when that message came to an end, I would say to the individual I was talking to, well, you may be interested to know that the salesperson that comes to talk to you, when asked by his manager why they had lost this particular piece of business, his reply was that it was lost on price. And you haven't mentioned price once. Um, could you help me to understand why that discrepancy in view between you and the salesperson? And he said, cool, blimey, yeah, um, that, that there are two reasons. One, it gets rid of him quickly if I tell him that we lost, uh, they lost on price. And secondly, if I told him the real reasons, he wouldn't understand what I was talking about. So, so there is a, a, a kind of message behind mm -hmm. that <clears throat> that says that irrespective of whether a third party is involved to gather the intelligence, the, the salesperson, if they are gathering the intelligence, and hopefully they do it before the business is lost, uh, if, if they use the old adage of you have two ears and one mouth, then you should behave accordingly, uh, and, and ask the right questions around the progress of the sale, which would determine which way the wind was blowing, uh, then maybe uh, the sale, the loss of the sale could be averted and the intelligence that the salesperson was looking for might come their way. Yeah, that's um, that's a that's a great great point you you make, and 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 indeed, uh, you know, it sort of very much corroborates the 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 kind of data that we get from clients who do, who go through the effort of doing win loss reviews, and uh, but that 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 again is you know is is quite an interesting question is to what extent do people really sit down and analyze you know why they lose business and uh, I, I suspect that quite a number of customers even on perhaps fairly significant deals uh, tend to be moving on to the next deal rather than spending enough time in a in a sort of deeply reflective sense sort of analyzing what uh, what went wrong um, but I, I don't know if you've got a point of view on that. Yeah, Phil, I, I, I have observed that. And uh, it, it, it is, as you point out, uh, the sign of a non-learning organisation. Yeah. Uh, if one doesn't learn from one's losses and one's mistakes, then the opportunity <coughs> for improving going forward is lost. Yeah, I think the opposite is also interesting is actually looking at why, why did you win um, yeah. as well. I, I think you can learn from, from both kind of scenarios. Um, but no, it's a, yeah, really, um, really good point that uh, 
you've raised and, and a great question. So thank you. Thank you for that. So uh, Luke, perhaps we can move on to one of the, the next uh, questions. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> well, let's take a step away from uh, the sales process perhaps and, and, and ask, why did you venture into a career in sales? Well, probably like a lot of people, I fell into it by, by complete accident. Um, so um, I'm not sure that it was a, a conscious decision. Um, I remember uh, when I, uh, you know, my first job was, at, was actually in banking. So it had nothing to do with sales at, 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 you know, at that stage of my career. And I then moved into the insurance sector and, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> um, and that, that was very much about sales. So, uh, yes, I, I moved into kind of sales, but it was, <coughs> I see one of the other questions that has, has been sent into, which may be linked to this um, question, which is about, um, you know, what is it that's changed in sales over the years? But um, I, I then moved and joined what I thought was a, a sales and marketing consulting it was a marketing consulting group. Um, and whilst they presented themselves as a sales and marketing consultancy, it was really a sales training business. It was, it was known as Mercury. But I found that once I started to get um, what, what was actually at the time, one of the best kind of trainings you could ever get in sales um, through that consulting group, I really started to enjoy it. Um, so uh, I'm not sure that I, you know, it was a happy accident in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed almost every, every minute of my, my, my career in sales. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, you have these incredible highs when you, when you close opportunities and you get these lows when you miss them. But the adrenaline that you get from the business of doing the business of selling is something that I think never, never leaves you, no matter what stage you're at in your, in your career. Um, but no, it, it, it certainly wasn't, it, it certainly wasn't a profession that I was really aware of. And of course, now we're trying to um, change that. <laughs> uh, we're trying to elevate the profession of sales, which I think is slowly changing, at least in the UK, you know, with, with the work we've done with uh, the Institute of Apprenticeships, you know, with getting the undergraduate degrees, you know, sales education is terribly important, uh, which you know about, of course, you've been through it yourself, Luke. So um, it's something that we're changing. And uh, I think it's one of the things that, that actually the UK government has done, which has been incredibly progressive. Um, other other countries don't have the same setup as we do, so uh, for that we need to be grateful. Yeah, of course. It, it, in Ian's first question, he he asked us about information. How do we get that information um, from our customers? How do we get the information we're not getting? And I suppose that comes into highlights the importance of understanding your customer. And one of, one of the other questions we've had is, is, is talked about 
um, the looming recession. Um, and it's asked, with talk of a recession looming, how can sales leaders get ahead of the curve with their customers? So that in itself is a question, but it, it is, um, is, is there a part there that in, as we go into this recession, do we need to know even more about our customer than, than we ever did before? Well, I think, of course, the answer is, is of course, that's, that's true. And I, I actually have um, kind of sensed that the impact, certainly in Europe, and I'm not sure if this is a global um, issue of the Ukraine situation, has been <coughs> higher than the pandemic from a kind of a, a, a recession point of view. Um, you know, during the pandemic, the tech industry sort of led the way. Um, their stock market valuations got uh, higher and higher. And of course, just recently, there's been a complete readjustment in, in, in and trillions taken off uh, stock market valuations of some of these organizations. But it's, it's not just affecting the tech industry. It's affecting... You know, it's, it's affecting as we as we all know the cost of living. It's difficult to get uh, you know food supplies through as we're hearing from the Ukraine situation. And I think the whole world is becoming sort of fairly nervous. Um, so to your question, um, what do sales leaders need to do to get ahead of the curve? Um, and I think that it, it's going to be harder and harder to manage the business of selling in an environment where markets are shrinking. Um, customers are going to be delaying decisions um, and, and pushing investment decisions from one quarter to the next. Um, and there's going to be an inevitable uh, kind of downsizing of if, if you like market opportunity um, and I guess the response to that is as far as a sales leader is concerned is to start to think about uh, what can the sales organization be doing in order to uh, mitigate cost or, or limit you know unnecessary costs in the business um, in order to adjust the size of the sales force to suit the market opportunity that exists. Uh, you could argue that could be a fairly short-term kind of strategy in the sense of, of, you know, perhaps now is the time to invest in sales at the moment that the market's shrinking. You know, don't, don't take, take salespeople away from talking to customers, you know, in, invest more in, in, in sales. But there will inevitably be some sales leaders who, in order to get ahead of the curve, and I'm talking here about balancing income with cost, um, have to, have no choice but to reduce um, some of the sales-strict marketing resources they have in the organisation. The challenge with, with, with that approach is that, whereas short-term, uh, there may not be any obvious impact on revenue. It will surely affect the, the organization in the longer term uh, because they, they won't have sufficient resource to uh, sort of generate future 
future business. So being ahead of the curve, yes, you, you may have to do a certain amount of trying to strip out costs that don't have a long-term impact on the business. Um, it's, you're going to have to want to look at demand generation in a lot more detail. You may not be able to win so many of the larger contracts in a you know, because the larger the, the larger deals are going to be heavily scrutinized if a procurement process is looking at uh, budgets and costs very carefully. Um, so um, so it could be smaller deals, but more of them that's going to help you manage, you know, the, the recession. Um, one can't afford to be complacent. You know, it's it's uh, attention to detail on every aspect of managing the different levers at the disposal of the sales leader to to maximize performance. Um, it's keeping the sales team motivated. You know, when when the opportunities aren't there, it's it's actually um, getting together, coming up with innovation campaigns that can actually sort of drive drive interest. Um, so there, there, there are many things that a, a sales leader needs to do to stay ahead of the curve, but uh, it's, uh, it's hard because it, it, it's, um, it, it's hard in a market that's shrinking to actually sort of maintain the velocity of pipeline and to, to maintain those, those uh, sales revenues according to what you forecasted. So there's going to be a, a lot of sales leaders very worried, you know, about how they're going to hit targets this year. Well, good luck to them. And, and one of the ways they can perhaps increase their likelihood of hitting target is to um, follow the positive and outstanding mindsets. Well, it's quite, it's, I mean, we, we do come back to the positive mindset so often. And, you know, we, we always ask the question, you know, what's more important? Is it mindset or skills? And when you have a situation when you're in a crisis or, you know, uh, and, and you're, you have these what, what I call pivotal moments when you've really got to step up, it's, it's at that point that the, the mindsets become most noticeable and most important. Um, and... And so, yes, I've talked about being pro, you know, creative already, but it's also, um, you know, being being bolder. It's being client centric. It's it 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 it's it strategizing. It's working out which of your clients, you know, you know, where are where is the budget to be found within the client portfolio that you've actually got. Um, it's um, yeah. So the mindsets are terribly important. It's it's choosing the, the the moments of what to sell to whom. The, the the risk is that the sales leader puts so much pressure on the sales organization to hit targets, is they it, it is that it drives the negative mindset behavior, you know, of being supplier centric, of, of being arrogant, of being uh, manipulative to try and close deals when when the deals simply aren't there to be had. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think the positive mindsets are key, but I, I think there's a there's another thing that's important, which is which is around resilience. Um, and 
um, there, there's some great podcasts that we've got that you know I I would urge people to listen to um, from uh, you know ex army generals and uh, Royal Marine commanders um, talking about mental strength at times of adversity, and I think that um, you know is is resilience something you can train in people or is it something that is part of one's personality you're either resilient or you're not i don't know if you've got a point of view on that luke it'd be interested to to hear what you have to say mm. well i've i've been looking at the the, the mindsets as as a source of reflection on on my first 6 months at consalia and i've had a i've had a great time at consalia in my first first half year um, but my my sales performance was slightly below target. So when I conducted a, a review in, into into my line of business apprenticeships, you know what what can I do to improve the situation, turn it around by the end of the year? I used the mindset survey tool, mm. and I tried to be really honest and answer it from how do I think I have been selling to customers not 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 what's the what's the amazing ideal that i tried to i tried to be good all the time so i was very honest and, and, and answered it in quite a vulnerable way and the negative mindset that came out for me was being too supplier centric which you mentioned just then i suppose what, what we mean by that for someone who's not familiar with the, the mindsets is it's quite simply making it all about me or making it all about my product and, and what makes what makes Consalia Business School brilliant. You know, going into sales conversations, sort of expecting to get a deal. So sort of verging on that, verging on that arrogance where you, you feel that you, you you own the right to to have the deal or own the right to have the conversation. And and what that would where that was really useful is. There's, there's no point going for a time of adversity. So let's call it that, a time of adversity where I haven't hit my goals for the first half of the year. There's no point looking at the, for me, looking spending too much time looking at the positives because usually your positive characteristics will be there all the time. But by looking at the, at the mindsets, I was able to go, do you know what, Luke? Look, let's look back at your emails. Let's go look at the source of the way you're talking to people. Are you having enough conversations in person or, or are you being lazy just trying to get it all done over teams? You know, have you, have you been willing to, to visit the customer site? And by doing that, I sort of, I came up with a rationale of new things I could do to not be as supplier centric in the second half of the year. Um, so I think that that period of adversity was very important for, 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 for me to have a, to develop as a salesperson, but it was useful to see it in the form of the mindsets because it, it's it, the mindsets are very broad to begin with. They're very, you know, just four very simple quadrants, if, if you will. But then it really gives you a, a clear rationale for what you can do to get those better outcomes in the future. Um, and for me, it was there sort of felt like it was there on a the plate by just answering 20 questions about my professional practice it told me that you know what you're doing wrong is you're supplier centric. Um, I, think, I think that what 
what you've done that's very good is is that you've um, clearly spent some time reflecting on the sort of so what and now what you know kind of questions, and I think that um, I think that that it's that uh, it's the call to action which has enabled you to actually come up with some yeah very simple but very important changes in the way that you approach customers which is which is great to hear so yeah I've, I've, I've kind of answered your the question that I was about to ask you um, because <laughs> the question the question the question is when is the best time to use this tool with my sales teams and I suppose you know my answer there is is firstly it was mid-year so it wasn't too late to rectify the, the solution uh, rectify the problem and uh, it, I guess it was part of a mid-year review. So, would you know when do you think it's the best time to use the sales tool? And, and would you agree that it could become part of uh, PDRs and performance reviews within sales teams? Well, it it, um, it certainly can now. It, I mean, it's 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 been a recent um, sort of innovation that the 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 mindset tool that we have now on on the website. Um, uh, can be date stamped, you know, so we're able to see progression over time. But I've given it, uh, given it, you know, sort of quite a lot of thought in the sense that um, uh, that th there could be, yeah, mid-year reviews is great at the beginning of a year. It's great. it's quite good to know where you are with your your not just your own personal reflections, but actually to get input, which you can now do using the tool from your customers um, on, on your performance around the mindset. And you can, you, you know, you could certainly use that to track into KPIs. And we've got clients now who, who are absolutely doing that. You know, they're beginning to, to embed the, you know, the, the sales mindset approach across uh, not just salespeople, actually, it's, you know, customer support and application engineers and, and so on. Um, but, but I'm also, uh, I also think it's something that could be done on an opportunity, you know, which may happen during the year, that, that one could start to look at your opportunity plan and to run the analysis on how that particular customer might see you at that point in, in time. Um, and what, what's become interesting is that with all the goodwill in the world, and if we had all the time in the world, we would want to be in what we call the winner's circle, you know, with, with the positive mindsets all the time. But it's pretty difficult to do that because if you're servicing, you know, a lot of accounts, you know, it's impossible to get around all those accounts and live the positive mindsets because you you simply don't have the time to do it unless you are a key account manager, perhaps looking yeah. after just one or two accounts where, where, where you can. So I think that in terms of the timing of the mindset survey, again, it you know, what you've suggested is absolutely true. Um, you can do this self at assessment at the beginning and mid-year reviews you can definitely link it to a kpi setting um but i think it can go beyond that as well uh to opportunities and the way in which key account plans are built 
using the mindsets as well. Um, it's got a lot of application, which is not just at the beginning or mid-year. It could be done almost at, at, at any time. Mm. What's what's the difference between uh, we're talking the difference between sales education and sales training? So if we look at sales education, perhaps the well the sort of height of our business school being the the masters in sales transformation, um, and, and what what makes that different to a two week training course? Let's say you went off two weeks residential companies paid for it quite probably quite a lot of money um what are the key differentiators between those two approaches to to developing salespeople? i remember when i first started in in the sales training sort of industry the typical you know duration of a sales training course was not two weeks you know unless it was a boot camp type environment which which might have been uh, a month even of dedicated sales training, which which used to be around mainly product training, to be honest, and how to sell the features, advantages, and benefits of product. But uh, and they called it sales training. Um, but but the duration was typically three days, and you know you would sheep dip everyone and put them through, a, you know, a, you know put everyone in in the organisation through a, a three day course, and there might be some sort of follow up to that. Um, but often there wasn't, you know, just everyone was told to go on a particular training course and that was it. Um, sales education is very different. Um, I mean, it's it's typically uh, externally accredited, uh, which means that the discipline required to um, provide evidence of having met standards it, it is embedded into an undergraduate degree or an exec master's program. Um, the biggest cost for a sales education program is not the delivery, it's the assessment. And that's, that's a big difference between sales training, mm. uh, where the biggest investment tends to be in, in the delivery. Um, and so... Um, you know, you, you first of all have got the, uh, you know, time is, is is a big difference. Two weeks to two years is, is a huge difference. Uh, with sales education, uh, with its intent to focus on outcomes and standards, um, you have a, a lot more uh, investment in projects uh, inside the, you know, you need to provide evidence that you understood theory and that you've understood practice and uh, you need to show degrees of reflective thinking, which uh, suggests that the impetus is very much based on the individual to respond. You know, you're expecting them to absorb ideas and then, and, and then in our case, sort of develop their own theories of practice um, through the type of degrees that we run. Um, so the degree of learning is on a different plane. Um, the uh, approach to learning is very different um, where it's much more focused on the individual rather than, you know, rather than giving 
individuals information you're asking individuals on the sales education program to actually uh, come up with their personal reflections and 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 then provide evidence that they've applied that learning in the workplace and critical reflection but i think one of the one of the other key sort of differences between sales training and sales education is currency in that in sales training you go on a course and you can say you've attended it but you come out with it with with no currency on a on an undergraduate degree you end up with a bsc or you end up with a masters or you end up with a phd um, and that is a um, that's a statement of quality that's a statement of the amount of knowledge and professionalism and ethical um, training that you've received as part of that particular journey. So um, there's just a massive difference between sales training and sales education. Um, and most organizations probably um, are familiar with sales training, fewer uh, with sales education, but that's obviously something we're trying to change. Mm. If we're trying to change the status quo so that sales education is is seen as the the primary route to professionalizing the industry rather than sales training then we'll need organizations to 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 create a sales academy in in a sense uh, a dedicated infrastructure to developing their salespeople. um and that indeed is one of the questions is what steps can I take to developing a sales academy within my organization to help salespeople grow in their roles? I, I remember oh, one of the very first projects we ever had in, in, uh, in, in the sales training organization that I started off with. Um, was helping to design the sales academy for Apple, and um, and uh, it was it was essentially a place in which you could source training content on a huge number of different topics that related to both sales and service management. Um, and I've seen many organizations since then adopt this sort of concept of building an academy. Um, the word academy suggests it's academic. But in those days, the academy were typically sales training solutions that were put into a curriculum that people could attend. Um, so there's a there's a definition that's kind of required. You know, if if an organisation want to set up a sales academy, one of the questions they need to ask themselves is, you know, what are the outcomes that you're looking for from, you know, from an academy? Um, is it just a nice way to brand the way in which you may offer training and development solutions to your team, or is it something where you want to offer individuals in the sales team a route to a 
um, academic qualification in addition to sales training that could be offered on a broad basis. So I, I think a lot of this is to do with ambition and it sort of starts off with it with a kind of vision of what, what is it that you're trying to achieve by setting up so-called an academy. It, it's very easy to get <clears throat> quite excited by the notion of building a brand around the different training solutions that you have. <clears throat> but actually, when you start to peel away the layers, it, it, it's an incredible investment. Uh, you need to think through the different um, uh, functions that you have within the sales force. You need to look at the knowledge, skills, and behaviors of those different functions. Um, you need to then start to look at what kind of curriculum would we need to put in place to take people through um, an, in, uh, an introductory, intermediate, and advanced um, sort of levels of performance within the academy. Uh, you need to ask yourself questions about how we're going to assess whether people have reached certain standards. What are the gateways that you need to go through in order to progress in an, an, an academy to whatever level? Um, uh, so all of, all, all of these kind of questions need to be kind of reviewed and reflected upon um, and careful consideration made to does the organization have the resources internally to be able to manage an infrastructure that can support sales development within the framework of an academy in whichever way you want to define it? There are options, of course, that are available to customers. You know, you could either decide to build an academy in-house with your existing sales enablement team, and some of the larger companies are able to do that, or you could potentially outsource it, you know, to a sales training provider or a sales education provider, depending on, you know, which route you want to go through. So there are different routes to go, but it's, it's um, the, da the, the, the danger is if you don't do it properly, um, the, sell the sales organization for whom it's destined will uh, become skeptical if all of a sudden, you know, this promise of this incredible development opportunity doesn't get realized. Um, so uh, I don't know if I've answered your question. Um, mm. But it's, yeah, it's about vision, it's about intent, it's about getting stakeholder involvement at the highest level, it's about securing budget to set it up in the, in the right way, um, it's about the vision you have about, you know, the pathways you want to build into the academy to help people progress, mm. but get it right, and it's, it's a fantastic magnet for new talent, and it's a fantastic retention tool. Um, so that, that, you know, there are major economic benefits for doing it, but don't underestimate how involved it is to set up an academy in, in the right way. Mm. And there are many good case studies of, of, of great success with, with, um, with sales academies. So, uh, Which ones were you thinking of, Luke? Well, I, I, I think Royal Mail, I'm, I'm biased because I used to work there, but, you know, I, I think Royal Mail, you know, what they did 
and also what they're doing in the future they're, they're looking at ways to develop all areas of the sales force from you know creating a funnel of apprentices coming in um but also looking at ways they can develop their senior leaders um and from my experience they were quite open with their employees about giving them opportunity to develop if, if they if they want they also offered um the level four while i was there i did the level six and the employees doing the level seven so what they've done is they've they've gone to various suppliers not just consalia um and created a call it an ecosystem of, of of qualifications that are available to to students and you know that, that worked because quite quickly they were able to to have an offering for everyone in the sales force and i think you know if, if i say from personal experience i know from being like one of the infantry one of the troops in royal mail should we say that it's important that you are given that opportunity <clears throat> so i think that's why they're 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 a good really good case study on that and and even more so that they were recognized in the princess royal training awards as well so it's not just my measly opinion um Princess Anne thinks they did quite a good job as well. <laughs> uh, no, you're, you're quite right. I think uh, that, that there are organisations who've actually had quite a long tradition of taking development very seriously. And and uh, you've been very fortunate to be part of one of those organisations with that sort of vision. Mm. And, uh, you know, they've always had a reputation for setting the sort of higher standards you know, for sales development and training. So, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I completely buy into what you're saying. There. It's, it's great in, 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 in my role to, when I see, particularly with the level seven postgraduate diploma, when I see students come onto that course, there's one of the first things they, they, they talk about is how, how valued they feel by their organisation, that their organisation has put them on this programme. Mm. Um, so I think that's a really important thing for you know any of our HR, any of our L and D, any of even any of our any of our listeners, you know, in sales enablement to to know that that's the reality of of, of some of the programs we offer is that is the the employee value. Um, <clears throat> let's go back to sort of a, a sales a sales practice question, right? Um, a very nice short snappy one so what is the best way to sell with intent what do you mean by the word intent <laughs> intent <laughs> to close intent to so i'm re- i'm really interested to know what that, yeah um, what that means uh, so what it, it was it was one of the questions submitted so i'm going to have to i'm going to have to assume what they mean by selling <laughs> with intent um I suppose maybe maybe they, maybe the person means outcome orientated by by intent. What's you know what's the best way to sell with intent? Intent means as a as a purpose. So how do you sell with a um, with a clear goal in mind? Golly, um, well I think a lot of this has to do with kind of a personal vision of of how you want to sell and. Uh, and you, you know, you talk about intent and purpose, and you know, purpose is quite an individual, uh, is quite an individual thing. Um, you know, a deep exploration of 
how you, you know, how do you want to engage with your customers? Um, what kind of values and belief systems do you do you want to have that's going to drive your sales approach? Is an, is is an essential kind of first step, um, and the sort of visualization of that in your mind. Um, you know, it, we, we talk about sort of outcome-based, uh, we used this term before, but actually picturing in your own mind about how it is you want to be perceived as a salesperson um, is, is, a, is a really important first step. Um, uh, and, you know, without that vision, nothing else will, will happen. I think once you, you've then got that outcome, it's then a question of considering, well, what are the steps that I need to sort of go about realising that outcome and, and, and that purpose? And it could be some of the things we've talked about on this call. It could be you know, sort of engaging with customers with questions about how they want to be sold to. It could be in the way that you follow a particular sales methodology or a sales approach. Um, it could be around the basic disciplines of how you manage your time and how you manage um, the tools and processes that you have at your disposal. Um, but your degree of application um, is going to be very much, you know, back to that sort of inner motivation that you've got about mm. what, you know, what is your intent? Um, now, I would suggest that, you know, you know, intent is very much driven around some sort of notion of providing customers with, you know, the best solutions possible. And that, you know, towards that intent, your role as a salesperson is to understand that customer really well. It's to try and think for the customer, you know, think ahead of what the customer might be thinking. Um, to bring innovation and new ideas to um, uh, to to them that perhaps they haven't thought of before. No customer is going to um, turn away from that notion. Um, so yeah, I think it's you know what's the best way to sell with intent? I think it's to be fully grounded in you know fully grounded in knowing who you are as a as an individual. And, and, and that you're able to express that through every point of engagement with a, with a customer. Mm. And, um, but I, I suspect there may be other people who are perhaps listening into this call who have different ways of defining what, uh, you know, what is meant by this word intent. If your intent is to close and that's it, then you're going to be adopting perhaps more manipulative sales techniques towards that goal. But that may be your intent mm. is that you may be driven by very much, uh, you know, how much money can I make from this uh, sale from this customer? And, uh, and, and that drives your intent. But, but one thing's for sure is that customers are themselves are going to be looking for what is the intent behind the, salesperson that's selling to me and um, can I trust this salesperson to sell to me mm. in the way that I want to be sold to so I suppose the caveat that I would you know I I, I, I would suggest is 
um, defining intent through the customer's perspective is perhaps a, a good way to go about defining, therefore, what is the best way to sell? It has to be the customer's perspective. Yeah. Because otherwise, the first thing that comes to mind for me with selling with intent, it's, it goes back to my intention. And it goes right. back to that issue of supplier centricity. Yeah. You know, my, you know, when I was looking at my practice for the first period of the year, and if the audio has gone bad, everyone, it's because it's raining quite heavily, but you should still be able to hear me. <laughs> yeah. And um, when, I, when, I, when I think about intent, it, it takes me back to that selfish desire to, to what, what, what do I want? So mm -hmm. I, I, as, a, as a BDM, I sit there at the start of the day and think, yeah, I want this person to buy from me, A, B, C, D, blah, blah, blah. And when I'm too driven by intent, I start caring less about what the customer wants and, and focus entirely on what I want. And when I was going back through, for example, looking at the, the language I was using in, in emails for, for that period of time, it was very much action orientated to favor myself. So it was, when can you come on a call to talk to me? Um, when, uh, our cohort will be starting on this day just to just to let you know because of course you're going to want to give me a load of students so i suppose it's a short question and therefore almost the shorter the question the broader it is so we could talk about it all day but um yeah that was just my my thoughts on intent is that it's yeah. very closely related to being too supplier centric and um i'm glad you made the point about customer perspective great thank but, you but, well, it, uh, it brings Do we us have time, or we're nearing the end. I'm not sure. Yeah, it looks like we're, we're we're nearing the end, and there was, I mean, there's one question there which perhaps we could say for the next MA because it's quite beefy, um, and I'm not sure if we'd have the time. <laughs> okay, perhaps we'll save that one for next time then, Luke. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it looks like a great question, um, but whether I could get it out of you in a couple of minutes. <laughs> I don't know. And also, I think my audio has got very bad in the last couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, why don't you save it for next time then? Let's save it for next time. So if you join next time, you'll have a question on transformation through coaching. And I'm oh, sure... Okay. okay, that's a great one, yes. Uh, and I'm sure many more um, from the people who leave, leave comments and send their emails in with the questions for requests. Okay. So, that's great. A good set of questions. And thanks, Ian, again for you participating as well on the call. Not sure if Ian is still with us. Yeah, I've been here throughout, Phil, and it's been a very enjoyable <laughs> and uh, entertaining experience. Thank okay. you. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Now, now, now we're in a rainstorm here in London. So yeah. <laughs> you can probably hear. <laughs> Um, that's great. Well, nice to have you on the call again, Ian, as always. Thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Well, in, in which case, we'll, we'll bring, bring it to an end and uh, bid everyone a, a farewell for the day. Yeah. Thank and you. Thanks, thanks for coming on, Phil. Yeah. Thank you. Cheerio. Bye bye. <laughs>